See, I don't trust anybody. I bring my own water. <laughs> it's there, but it's last night. So see, I was right, right not to trust anybody. My name is Rhea, and I am an alcoholic. I would say that I'm glad to be here, but right now I'm not. <laughs> I, uh, I didn't sleep well. I feel stupid, and so I have had to throw myself totally on the mercy of God. Imagine that. So what I'm going to ask you to do, please, just for a moment, is bow your head and say, please, God, help her. Okay? <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you very much. The one thing I do know is that he shows up at every meeting. He never misses a meeting. Now, I was born in Arkansas, and that's the state where the only virgins are girls who can outrun their brothers. <laughs> but, but at least it's not West Virginia. Now, wait a minute. You heard about the honeymoon couple that came back from their honeymoon, and after the honeymoon, he took her back to his father's, her father's house, to her family, and said, you know, this is just not going to work out. And they were like, well, what's wrong? He said, she was a virgin on the wedding night. Well, what's the matter with that? Well, if she's not good enough for her family, she's not good enough for mine. Upside to being from Arkansas. <laughs> Somebody sent my tape to the Arkansas convention. They said, uh-uh. <laughs> we don't think we want her to come back. So I didn't get an invitation. I don't know why. But anyway, I was born in Arkansas, and uh, my parents were in the carnival business. And five days after I was born, my parents left me with my aunt and took off doing whatever in the world it was they did. And from that moment on, and of course I don't remember that, but I was different. I was always different. I was always trouble. I was always in trouble from the time I was a little bitty kid. I believe that the first symptom of my alcoholism when I was found under a cupboard in the kitchen of my aunt's house with a giant jar of marshmallow cream and a spoon. I really do. I have come full circle. I no longer hide under the cabinet. <laughs> but I am still, if things are really bad, I get in that kitchen, I start making those cookies, and I start eating them. And uh, this is my sobriety date is January 1, 1988. Uh, and I am still <laughs> not right. <laughs> this is my favorite theme of any conference that I have ever attended or spoken from because it is exactly who I am I mean my husband just asking she ain't right anyway so I uh, I when I got to school age I was left first of all I went to about 52 schools in two years first and second grade I, I did not learn to read when you're the new kid all the time you don't learn anything all you're trying to do is fit in some way somehow so I was a marvelous liar I've been a liar from the day I was born I've also been in rebellion from the moment of birth from the time I could stand up I was mad at everybody and I didn't want anybody to tell me what to do and I haven't come a long way from that point just yet I'm hoping if I can get to Miss Ruby's time and have 57 years in sobriety, I'll be a little bit better. But it is progress, not perfection. I will also tell you something else. There are a lot of people in this room who are going to die drunk. It could be me. I may not. I hope not. That's why I keep showing up and doing all this stuff I don't want to do. I didn't want to go to meetings. I didn't want to get a sponsor. I didn't want to do any steps. I didn't want to do anything. And the only reason I did any of that stuff is because the pain of hanging on to all the big empty inside of me was greater than letting go. And the pain of letting go was awful. You know, I remember when I... That's later, never mind. Anyway, I told you I'm stupid this morning. Thank God, keep praying. <laughs> don't, don't stop now. 
So anyway, I went to these, uh, all these schools, couldn't read. My parents decided I, I needed to stay with my mother's family. Some very unfortunate, I have some unfortunate relatives in Arkansas, okay? Uh, and I had some physical and some sexual abuse from an uncle and some cousins and all this other stuff. And you know what? I felt so much guilt about that because I would have done anything to feel loved. I would have done anything for some to feel like somebody loved me because I did not feel that way. It wasn't the truth, but it was my perception of reality. And my perception, it doesn't matter. What does it say in the big book? Fancied or real. Whatever's been done to you, whether it's really true or not true, doesn't have much to do with how you feel about it. You know, if I, if I think the earth is square, then baby, it is square to me. Okay? And it was. And I felt like somebody needed to come and get me because I was in the wrong family, the wrong place, the wrong time, and I did not belong here. I did not know where I did belong. I was a very troubled child. I was all messed up long before I ever took a drink or anything else. And I say I'm an alcoholic, uh, and I am an alcoholic. But, and I don't really say I'm a drug addict because dr I did a lot of drugs, don't get me wrong. But they just made me thirsty. <laughs> I mean, they made me thirsty. Yeah, I did drugs so I could drink longer, drink more, stay up longer. You know, and I mean, I walked around in a blackout for days sometimes. And I'm still going. You know, my brain has been asleep for days and I'm still rocking. And uh, I remember one time we had a contest and we were going to see who could stay up the longest. We were drinking wine and snorting crystal meth. <laughs> Seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> and I had a camera. And every time somebody went to sleep, I took a picture of them so I could prove <laughs> that I had been awake longer than anybody. And I won seven days and nights. And I remember looking at my hand, and it was green. I was green. I was wearing a size two, pulled over. You know, pinned. I looked, I was tits and eyeballs. <laughs> I can prove that too. <laughs> Not those kind of pictures. I didn't believe in letting people take pictures of me. <laughs> no matter how crazy I was, I wasn't that crazy. Okay? And I was pretty crazy. So anyway, so I had uh, my, in the fifth grade, they sent me to a Catholic boarding school, St. Scholastica's Academy in Covington, Louisiana run by Benedictine nuns who are a nursing and teaching order and they had me 24-7. They are a semi-cloistered order and their mind was on me all of the time. And it was the first time in my life I'd ever felt love and I truly believe it. if it had not been for that experience and those devoted women, I would be dead today. They were... They were the, the only people who ever could tame me in any way. I was totally wild. I had no boundaries. Remember, my parents are in the carnival business. I went to work as soon as I could make change. I had my own business when I was 12. And someone asked me this weekend, what was my least favorite career? Because I said I've been reinvented a whole bunch of times. And I have, drunk and sober. <coughs> Uh, when I was about 16 years old, m my father built things. He was a tinkerer and, a, and a, uh, an inventor and all these different things. And we were on a carnival and we had exhibits. And one of the things he built was an optical illusion. And I talked on the microphone. She walks, she talks, she crawls on her belly like a reptile. <laughs> Come in and see the alligator girl. Now there's a problem though. This is an optical illusion. People are supposed to know this is an optical illusion and try to figure out how it works. Well, whenever he couldn't hire anybody to be the alligator girl, guess what? <laughs> that would be me. 
and I would sit in a little box underneath the table with mirrors around it and it was fixed so that it looks like you can see under the table and I had a little uh, scarf around my neck and a stuffed alligator body behind me that's all shiny and looks like of course it's been dead for 35 years and people will come in and say can you wiggle your tail (laughs) and I mean I hated my father for making me do that it was humiliating and embarrassing. And then people would see me outside and they'll go, <laughs> I mean, it was, there were a lot of wonderful experiences growing up in that way. I've been to every county fair, every centennial, <clears throat> every celebration, all the state fairs. I knew kids all over the country. I would ride their horses. You know, everybody would bring their stuff to exhibit at the fairs. And I'd ride their horses and, they'd, I'd, and they would. And I would take them on all the rides. So we had a, you know. But I was an outcast, a social outcast. When I was about seven years old, uh, I was going to school for one week in a town. And uh, on a Friday afternoon, something must have happened to this bus driver at the carnival because he said that I had to go to the back of the bus. And I'll never forget it because when I went to the back of the bus, all the other kids got up and went to the front of the bus. And there I was. And he let all these kids off and he drove back to the school, which is a country school somewhere, God knows where, I don't know. And he got out and he got in his car and he drove away. And of course it's like five o'clock by this time, there's nobody there. And I start walking down this road crying. I know which way to go because I know from which way we came. And I'm walking down this road. And it just happened to be one of the school teachers out in her yard uh, on this little country road playing in her garden. And she found me. And uh, all kind of hell was raised and I was taken back to my family. But that feeling of being an outcast, of being different, of being not good enough, stayed with me. From then on, before then, always I had it. I I remember once one of my aunts telling me, I'm crying, my parents just left, they left me there. You know, I want my mama, I want my mama. And I remember her saying, well, you know, if they'd have loved you, they wouldn't have left you here. And of course, she was probably fed up to here with me. Uh, But I believed her. We believe these things. So I'm carrying all this baggage around with me, all this abuse and the sex stuff and, the, and all the outcast stuff and the carnival business stuff. And I discovered men, marijuana, alcohol, all at about the same time. It was wonderful. It was a mind-altering experience. So when I became about 18 years old, I started getting married. I was a Catholic girl you didn't sleep with people you married them so I did over and over and over again always there was something wrong it was never me obviously it was you so I said I'm not doing this anymore out the door and uh, I would tell you my last name but I only have so many minutes and by the time we get done, you know, it'll be too late to say anything else. Suffice it to say, I had two children by two different fathers, both married, and I had myself fixed because I knew that I could not trust myself. You know, I might fall in love with a goat like next week. I mean, I knew enough to know that I could not be trusted. And so I, I took necessary steps, you know, around me to make sure that I would be okay, even if I wasn't okay, you know, and I would go out with friends and we would make packs, we're going to stay together, nobody's leaving alone, nobody's going to go with a guy, Nobody, you know, most of the time that worked, sometimes it didn't, sometimes it didn't, and I, I found myself in places that I didn't know where I was or who I was with, you know, the old coyote... <laughs> joke where you want to chew your arm off rather than wake up whoever that is (laughs) so a lot of that stuff went on and my life was a total wreck and I had these two children I didn't take care of either one of them I gave them both to my mother to take care of while I was busy 
I forgot to get my high school diploma when I was a senior in high school in uh, Sarasota, Florida. They told me in April I wasn't going to graduate because I didn't have uh, enough credits because the history of the Catholic Church and the Crusades and blah, blah, blah didn't count. I said, well, I'll fix you. So I got drunk at them. I got drunk, got on a motor scooter, wrecked the motor scooter, tried to commit suicide, cut my wrists, you know, just all the regular stuff kids do. <laughs> I tried to commit suicide twice, and after I had my first child, I quit. I thought it didn't look good in front of the children, you know, it doesn't look good. So I quit doing that. But I was trying to kill myself all along. I just didn't realize it. I was living in the big empty. I had nothing, absolutely nothing. And my life yawned around me, filled with darkness. Uh, my, my aunts, some of my, you know, half of my people are uh, Baptists and the other half are thieves. <laughs> and sometimes it kind of blurs in the middle. So when I was on the carnival, I was being taught how to talk you out of your money without giving you anything. And when I was in Catholic boarding school in the wintertime, I was being taught how to be a lady. <laughs> it was extremely confusing. You know, I mean, it was just, I, I just was a wreck. So I don't know, I don't remember what happened. I got, and I won't go into it because I just want to qualify myself, you know. Uh, but along about the time they had, a, remember when the bulls were the big deal? Some of you don't. You weren't even born yet. You're all babies. <laughs> but when the bull, the, the mechanical bull at Gillies was the big deal, you know, I'm sitting in my best friend's house who owns a nightclub called the Cheyenne Social Club on the Gulf Coast Highway 90. It's not a whorehouse. It's a rock and roll club. <laughs> Easy now. And... Uh, there's a band upstairs, and there's a big uh, bar downstairs, and this and that. And we're sitting there snorting a little coke, drinking a little whiskey, trying to figure out how I can make a living without doing anything, because I can't do anything. <laughs> so I'm like, eh, what are we going to do? I know. Buy a bull. You know, I'm a carnival kid. Sounds like a great idea. I get in my car, go to Texas, get a bull, come back. I mean, I didn't, I didn't check into insurance. I didn't check into anything. I just did it. That's the way I lived my life. If it went through here, it either came out here or it went into action. And if you don't think you can get in some serious trouble doing that, doing everything your mind tells you to do, <laughs> just try it. Because <laughs> my head is not my friend, honey. It is not my friend. It tells me stuff today. And I'm like, shut up. <laughs> Whatever, don't do it. Talk to somebody. Now remember, there are people who think they are led by God and they don't need anybody else. Well, I'll tell you one thing. Me and God will get drunk. Me and you will get drunk. But me, you, and God have got a shot. And that's the only way we have a shot. Because if God tells me to do something, I immediately need to call you. And say, well, now this is what God said, you know, and hear what you've got to say about it. <laughs> Do not move to Minnesota. <laughs> yeah. There were a lot of things like that, things I, I thought were a good idea, and I just did them. And I went and got that bull, and I brought it back, and we started bucking around all over the place. And I had a very high profile. I knew everybody. Everybody knew me on the Gulf Coast. I was one of those. And, uh, and I got into some serious trouble, which wasn't my fault. <laughs> and I got arrested for kidnapping. Now, I'm not going to go into that story. <laughs> Because it's irrelevant, immaterial to this thing here. But it seemed like a good idea to leave town. Because everybody, all my friends were running around saying, kidnap me, baby. You know, and I'm like, I can't do this. All the charges got dropped. I got out of it. It only cost me 10 grand. The DA went to uh, Disney World when, I'm, when my trial came up. <laughs> you know? And so uh, I decided to go to Arkansas. Because that's where my mother's family was. And, you know... Families where you go, they can't, they've got to take you. That's where you go. They've got to take you back. So I went up to Arkansas. Now, I'm unemployable. I've already spent all my money getting out of trouble because my father gave me two pieces of advice as a child. Now, this is for a daughter. And the two pieces of advice were, one, never tell anybody anything. And the second one was, do not get a felony on your record. 
Interesting gene pool, no? <laughs> yeah. So I didn't. I spent every dime I had getting out of that. So I'm unemployable. I have no money. So I did not recognize the pattern of my life because I had not yet approached any steps of any kind. And uh, so I'm like, hmm, I'll get married. I'll find somebody to take care of me. And so I found me a good-looking alcoholic who had a good job, broad shoulders, blonde, handsome, ooh. And my poor mother said, honey, don't do this. Two years, he won't be able to stand up. And I said, mother, you don't understand. When we get married, he's going to quit drinking. I mean, I didn't say anything about me. I just, he's going to quit drinking. And of course, he didn't, and I didn't. And, uh, and about a year and a half into this, I'm like, here I go again. I'm done. I'm out of here. I can't do this. My daughter and my stepdaughter graduated from high school. I took them over to the University of Arkansas to enroll them in college. And I became a special student. Remember, I hadn't graduated from high school. Another load of guilt and yucky that I was carrying around inside of my heart. I became a special student. By the way, I'm the only one who graduated from college. Uh, I graduated in three years with a 397. And the reason I got a 397 is because of music freaking appreciation. (laughs) Who knew they were going to make you listen to movements of concerts and identify the movement and and the writer? And I'm like, huh? (laughs) Because that was like the last class. And I was, you know, how you get at the end of college. You're so tired, all you want to do is just leave. That's why a degree is so important, because if you can finish college, people that are going to be in the hiring market know that you've got enough stick to to finish something. That's what it's about, because every time you go for an interview for some kind of professional job, they're going to teach you what they want you to do, and what you've learned in college doesn't have anything to do with it. But I was an English major, and the reason I was an English major is I love to read books. And in fact, the first escape that I ever had was reading books. I remember it very well. I escaped from reality. I became somebody else, somewhere else, in another time, in another place. And I have used books and movies all my life to escape. I still do sometimes. You know, reality is not a hell of a lot of fun sometimes. Have you noticed? It really isn't. It's hard. Life is hard. It is hard to live sober. I mean, that's why I drank. For God's sake, I didn't want to feel anything. You know, I knew there was something wrong, but I never figured out what it was. Where am I, anyway? Anybody know? I don't. (laughs) Went home to Mama. Went back to Arkansas. Found my alcoholic. Married him. Decided I wasn't going to go with him. Went to college. I was living in an apartment about as big as this podium here. This little little thingy here. And I had a 12-year-old son who was crazy. Crazy. And it was he and I. My daughter had already left home. And I started going to school. I began to think school was the answer. Well... Went a year and a half without a drink, went to AA, didn't get a sponsor, didn't work any steps. I was going to dance my way sober. Went out of town, Alabama, to a funeral with somebody not in the program. On December, the Christmas holidays in December of 1987, I had a year and a half sober. Or a year and a half dry. Or a year and a half without mind-altering things. I will not say I was sober because I was not. Uh... And we stayed in a hotel New Year's Eve. We went downstairs because she didn't want to go by herself. And uh, I'm sitting at a bar minding my own business. And I raised my little hand. I said, I'll have a white Russian. That's my drink of choice. I hate the taste of alcohol. And I, I don't know how many I drank that night. As many as I could. And I came out of a blackout about 4 a.m. sitting in a re- restaurant with, with a lot of people that I did not recognize. And the only thing I can say about that is just thank God it was a restaurant because it could have been anywhere. And I realized, not then, but when I woke up the next morning and we had to drive back to Arkansas, oh my God, I'm an alcoholic. I do not believe that I had really got it, you know. I hadn't gotten it. And about... 
I don't know, 30 days later, I went up to uh, Springtime in the Ozarks, which is an absolutely gorgeous dogwoods in bloom up in the northern mountains of Arkansas. And uh, they have at the end of the Ozarks, and I stayed right across the street at a little motel called the Joy Motel. I'll never forget it. Saturday night, everybody's having a big doings, this, that, and the other, everything's rocking, and I know I'm going to die. I don't know what to do. I've only been to A a year and a half. I don't know what to do. What am I going to do? So I tried to go out my door. I couldn't open it. I was afraid. I was so filled with fear, I couldn't open the door. And so I did what I always do. I said, you know, I changed clothes. Looking good is very important, baby. If the outside looks good, it doesn't matter how the inside feels, right? Finally, I still couldn't, I, I couldn't go out of that room. And I get chills today from it because I got on my knees. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know who I was talking to. But I got on my knees. And I said, if you're there, please help me. I cannot live this way anymore. I'll do anything. And I don't know what happened. I found out later I had made a freaking decision. I made a decision. I had done step three. I made a decision that I would go to any lengths. Any lengths. I would do anything. And the reason that touches my heart so much is it was so tremendous. That's the night I met my first sponsor, uh, who was a man. Nobody that I, where I lived in southeast Arkansas had worked the steps. We talked about them all the time, but nobody had taken any action. We couldn't figure out why everybody kept getting drunk. So anyway, this guy flew down from uh, St. Louis, Missouri a couple weeks later. He, he gave me all those uh, templates out of the big book, the Joe and Charlie things that, you know, that he had used with all his sponsorees. And he flew down and, and, and we, we get, I, I did the process. I did the work. And step five revealed to me the pattern of my life that I had lived it over and over again. Same thing over and over again. Just with different people to protect the guilty. <laughs> Just, it was a, it was... It was an incredible revelation of what my life had been like. Nothing had changed over 20 years. And um, he wrote out my uh, men's list, my resentment list for the people for me to pray for. And I started praying for everybody on the list for two weeks and all this stuff and blah, blah, blah. I got to down to the bottom of the deal and he called me from St. Louis and how are you doing with that? And I said, I've got one. I just, I don't know what to do. I said, I cannot forgive my father. I cannot do it. You know? It's a very difficult thing when you love someone so much and hate them so much at the same time. And my father was dead. He had died of cancer and um, some years back. And he never saw me at my worst. My mother did. Joy for her. But she died also before I got sober. She was a diabetic. A lot of diabetics in alcoholic families, by the way. A bunch of them. I think it's all tied up together, but it's another story. Anyway, my sponsor told me to write a letter and to write down every, every good thing, every bad thing first, every bad thing, everything I thought my father had done to me. To write down every good thing I thought my father had ever said, done, or thought about me. And at the end of the letter to write that I forgave him. Well, I said, I don't. He said, I don't care. Do it anyway. Somehow my sponsor didn't care how I felt about anything. <laughs> He was only interested in what I did. You know, he said, we had a meeting while you were gone, and we don't care how you feel. <laughs> you know, like, well, first off, I remember him telling me early on, listen, I want you to call three women a day. Why? He said, I want you to call three women a day, and I want you to ask them how they're doing, and I want you to listen. And I was like, I don't care how they're doing. What about me? What about me? You know? I mean, nothing he told me to do made a damn bit of sense. None. But I did it because he had a trick question. And the question was, when I would balk, which I balked frequently, do you want to get well? Well, that's a trick question. I can't say no, right? I mean, how can I say no? So I did it. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do anything. But when I got to that place where I wrote that letter and he came and picked me up and took me down to Gulfport, Mississippi where my father was buried and I followed the directions and I just did what he said to do. At the end of that day, when I got to the bottom of that letter where I said to my father, I forgive you. God had made a change in my heart. 
It was real and it was true. It had happened. Not because of anything I did, but because of of a willingness just to do something. And then God stepped in and did a miracle in my heart. And I don't have time to tell you the miracles of the heart that have taken place within me from that day to this. Of course, you must realize I was not well. (laughs) Y'all was not well at this time. Three years after that, I married the sponsor. (laughs) Seemed like a good idea at the time. He thought it was. He's my sponsor. He was my spiritual advisor. He was the one who led me to the God of my understanding. I was, I loved him. I was not in love with him, but I loved him. I respected him. You know, all kind of different things. And I said to myself in my head, there is no way you're ever going to fall in love with anybody. You're totally incapable of it anyway. Well, so why don't I just marry him? So I did. And we started a business in Atlanta. We made a lot of money. We lost a lot of money. And then I found out he was living a secret life. And he had some girl up in an apartment somewhere. And he's he's a big church guy and very spiritual. And oh my God, isn't it great? And my world dropped. And that's, I don't know, we were married six years. I was about, I don't know, about ten years sober, I guess, when all this took place. I was devastated. I was devastated on many levels. But, you know, one of the stories of my life has been betrayal by people I trust. And so on that level, it was just mind-boggling. And the idea that I was stupid enough to... To let, you know, have all this happening all around me and never be even, you know, like, dude, isn't everything great? Yeah. <laughs> that marriage wasn't working out, and I knew it, but I had made a promise to God, and I was going to stick it out. I was going to stick it out. And uh, it was what I thought at the time. Just like when I thought I was an alcoholic, I, I thought, man, this is the worst thing that can ever happen to you. Uh, naturally, it turned out to be the very best thing that could ever happen to me. And whenever he completely uh, show, showed himself for who he was and what he was, I no longer found it necessary to remain in that marriage. And I thought that was just terrible. And, of course, that turned out to be the best thing that could ever happen to me. Because some little time after that, uh, I met someone in an AA meeting. You know, they say if you, if you meet your, 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 your darling in an A meeting, it's like going to a nut house to find a boyfriend, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> so I met my husband, Mike, who's here this morning. Mike, honey, stand up for a second. This man. <laughs> We have managed to stay married for 13 years. I mean, I have, you know, I've been married six or seven or eight or whatever, how many times? (laughs) It's not important. And uh, only people, I I had two two marriages that lasted six years. That was that sober marriage and one other tiger I got by the tail who who I couldn't get rid of. I couldn't get rid of him. He was going to kill me, my dog, my cat. But this is a world record. People like me do not have long-term relationships. We are incapable of it. The person that I came here as could not have another a relationship with another human being. You know, I am not that person today. I am another person entirely. Now, the Wicked Witch of the West shows up on occasion. But my definition of sobriety today is longer and longer periods of sanity and shorter and shorter periods of insanity. Now, if you've been around a little while, you may have noticed that, that you can go along and just sort of be all right, you know, and be kind of spiritually fit. Everything is rocking. And then, all of a sudden, you go nuts. (laughs) I don't know what happens. You know, I consider I'm not responsible, but I know that I am because you told me I am responsible no matter what. I am responsible for my behavior no matter what. Drunk, sober, everything but dead. I am responsible for my behavior. Now, living sober has not been a bowl of cherries. 
Let me tell you, it's been hard. After that, uh, we made a lot of money, this sponsor husband and myself. We made a lot of money. Then uh, 9-11 hit, and we lost a lot of money. I was a multimillionaire on paper, and then I was a nothing on paper. Which, you know, the thing I learned from that, the great lesson I learned from that, was that it, it didn't matter. I wasn't happy then. I'm much happier now. But if you've never had money, a lot of people who've never had money believe if only I had whatever, I would be happy. It's not true. Just like you said last night. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you have. It matters what's going on inside. Uh, I reconciled with my daughter. My daughter and I are very close. We're very good friends. My son, my son had a very hard time with my sobriety because he lost control of me when I began to get better, when I began to get sane, when I began to be able to let go of the fear and the guilt and the shame and the darkness of my own past. He could no longer manipulate me into doing what he wanted me to do. And so he and I had this love-hate relationship. Now, I've got to tell you, it took me a long time to quit bailing him out of jail. Took me a long time to quit sneaking $20 bills into the thing here on the jeans. You know, you cut the little hole, you roll up the $20 bill, and you stick it in there, and you take clothes to the jail so that he can have money to buy whatever. It took a long time for me to stop, but you know. And the last thing I did, uh, I sent him to Alina Lodge up in Pennsylvania, which is supposed to be the very best juvenile whatever. And uh, I still have a resentment against them. I, I may get over it, but, you know, I may not. If they would stop sending me letters asking for money, I might get over it. <laughs> but they don't. But my son went there for about four months, and it was uh, about 40 grand out of my pocket, and they had him on so many different drugs uh, that it was amazing. And um, he got into some kind of wrangle with a kid over the weekend, and they kicked him to the curb and took all his stuff, threw it in a sack, took all the drugs, threw him in a sack, and took him to the bus station and dropped him off. Now, I, uh, then he went to California, moved to California. And uh, about four years ago, I got a call from my daughter on a Saturday morning. and said, Mother, can I come over? And I said, Oh, my God. Yeah, sure, come over. But she never calls me at that time of day. I figured maybe she's got a husband problem. That's my first thought. And she comes over, and she had a call from California. And they found this young man hanging 50 feet up in a tree by his own belt. Uh, and he'd been there for about 90 days. And my son's driver's license was in his pocket. It took him 30 days to pull fingerprints because he was dried up, desiccated. So it took 30 days for us to be sure that it was my child. And it was. He was 32 years old. He'd been into a half a dozen treatment centers. What I have of his is his big book and his courage to change. He was beautiful. He was charming. He was gorgeous. Women loved him. Somebody always supported him and took care of him. He spent more energy not working than I ever did working. You know, he was getting spray-on tans and being cool in California. But he got tangled up with crystal meth, and they do it differently now than when I was doing crystal meth, and so it destroys your mind, and it makes you totally paranoid. And, and he was not coming back. Yeah. At that time, I could not see God's hand in it. Uh, and my home, group, my home group, which is the Yana group, it's a women's group, you are not alone. They carried me on a wave. And this Saturday morning, I was on my way to a meeting, and somebody came and got me, and I went to an AA meeting. That's where I went. I had to go to an AA meeting. This is where I belong. When, all, when everything else fails, when, all, when the world dies around me, when, when darkness covers my heart, I go to AA. Because the, you are the only people who understand. You're the only people who know that no matter what is happening, that it's not worth taking a drink over. It's not, you know, it's not going to help anything. And it was the only place I felt safe. I remember very little about the next three or four months. Very little. I know that they, they had a service. And 
uh, we had to have his ashes because he was in no shape to be seen. And uh, he had a girlfriend and she flew his ashes from California. And I said, all I want is his big book, you know. And so she brought the big book and his ashes and the courage to change. And, and we had a service for him finally. And um, his ashes are sitting by my fireplace. And it's the first time I've known where his little ass is constantly <laughs> since he was about 16 years old. And the reason I tell his story and I tell about him is because I do not want his life to be wasted. I have many sons now. I have many children. I see so many beautiful young people here. A lot of you are not going to make it, baby. He could go to the helping places, but he would not receive help. He would not listen. He believed, like almost all young people believe, that he is ten foot tall, invisible, and bulletproof. I got news for you. You're not. You're not. And with all the things that we have today to get high and to get messed up, all these new drugs, I see people here, you know, they haven't had time to become alcoholics. Otherwise, you have no staying power whatsoever. What it is, is all these new drugs. They destroy people's lives so quickly that if you're going to be an alcoholic and you're going to have that disease truly and really, you're not going to live long enough to get it. <laughs> not that you don't drink, I'm sure. You do. Everybody. We all do everything. I did. Because uh, the pain of reality was way too much for me to live in. I tried to escape from myself from the time I was a little bitty kid, from sugar on, books, movies, and then I discovered all the good stuff. Now, I was reading, uh, as Bill sees it this morning, and it was on humility, which I have very little of, by the way. I got a lot of character defects. I'm impatient. I'm intolerant. I don't suffer fools gladly. I have a difficult time. People that think that, uh, that a sharing meeting is a speaker meeting. <laughs> I mean, I got all kind of stuff, okay? I got all kind of issues. And God just keeps rubbing on me and rubbing them rough, rough edges off. And I remember calling my sponsor one time and saying, you know, about somebody. And my sponsor said, the people who give you the most trouble are your greatest teachers. And I won't tell you what I said because it's inappropriate. <laughs> Coming from the podium. <laughs> but I was reading this little thing because I was trying to, what I was trying to do is see if I could track this morning at all. Because I did not sleep well. And so the way to find out if you're tracking at all is to try to read a few sentences. And if you can't hold them in your head, you know there's serious problems ahead. Anyway. So here it is. We scarcely need be reminded that excessive guilt or rebellion leads to spiritual poverty. But it was a very long time before we knew we could go even more broke on spiritual pride. Ah. You know, I used to live up in Atlanta. I had a following. I would speak over here and a whole bunch of people would go over there. I'd speak over here and a whole bunch of people would go over there. And I began to think that I was just all that. You know? I mean, it's like I began to believe the headlines. This has got to be about me, baby. Right? Well, of course, it's not about me. It's about God and the miracles that God does here in these rooms. But in order to teach me that lesson, God totally plucked me out of Atlanta and put me down in McDonough, Georgia. Nobody knows who I am or cares, which is exactly where I need to be. You know, that's where I need to be. I love where I live. I love what we do. I sponsor a lot of women. It takes a lot of people to keep me sober. It takes a lot of people to keep me sober. I mean, I've got to work with other people or, uh, you know. I mean, I don't want to answer the phone half the time when the phone rings. Oh, my God, it's Cheryl. Oh, my God. You know. I, but they are the lifeblood. I mean, they are awesome. One of my sponsorees called me one time. She was about, oh, I don't know, 60 days sober. She was a wino school teacher. <laughs> Who taught in a Catholic school. Every day after school, she'd run after a car, open the trunk of the car, get a bottle of wine, and go like this, you know. <laughs> anyway, she called me up. And she said, um, 
Are the Ten Commandments still in effect? Uh, she's a Christian girl, and I said, uh, Where are you? <laughs> she said, Well, I'm over at Billy's house, and he said that we live by grace now, and you know, now it's okay if I sleep with him because the Ten Commandments are no longer in effect. <laughs> and I said, Do you still have your clothes on? She said, yeah. I said, good. Go home. (laughs) Call me in the morning. I mean, is that awesome or not? I mean, they are so much fun. (laughs) Who else could, I mean, you know, where else would you get that conversation? But I mean, you know. (laughs) It's an amazing program. God knows I love it. I've done all kind of different stuff. I didn't want to do it, but I did it. I was the the GSR, and I was the Grapevine this, and I was the DSM, DCM. I was all the alphabet stuff, you know, like... And I did all the alphabet stuff, too. I could take acid. I could take acid with no problem. The one thing about taking acid is you got to remember you're on a trip. The refrigerator is not really talking. As long as you remember that, you're cool, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I could do that. Uh, but I, I didn't like downers. I wanted to be balanced, babe. You know, you drink a little, take, do a little Coke, do a little crystal meth, take a quaalude or two, and you're like, yeah. <laughs> There's only one problem with that. It's very, very difficult to maintain that balance. Many of you may have noticed that you have overshot your mark. <laughs> could do that successfully, I would still be doing it, I promise you. But there was a problem. And the problem was me. And uh, if it hadn't been for AA, I'd be long dead. Or I'd be sitting in a room, slobbering out of the side of my mouth, asking, you know, wondering which one I was. I OD'd a couple times, I remember. I remember. I was standing in a shower one time, and I was like, oh boy. And I was going. And I remember calling out, It's over! I mean, I'd been taught you never tell anybody anything. You certainly never call doctors, police. You don't do any of that. No. Not where I come from. That is not what you do. You just die and get it over with. I didn't care anyway. I didn't care about anything. Today, I care. When I went through these steps and I came out on the other end and realized that the whole purpose of this was for me to find a power greater than myself that could solve my problem, which was not alcohol. The thing was a spiritual awakening and spiritual growth for the rest of my life. I found the God of my understanding here in these rooms You know, it says seek. And if you look up the definition of seek, it says go after with all your heart. Go after with all your heart. And that is what I must do with my higher power. I must seek after God with all my heart. Otherwise, I don't have a chance. Everything is based on that. My spiritual fitness, my ability to get along with others, you know, the idea that there are no big deals. I mean, this weekend, I left Friday afternoon. I had one of my husband's sponsorees stayed at the house for the weekend. We've got two dogs and a cat and this, that, and the other. And uh, we got a call Saturday morning that my Springer Spaniel jumped up and knocked over my brand new Sony flat screen and destroyed it. Okay? So I'm like, And then, of course, we hear on the news that there's been tornadoes in Mississippi and 10 or 12 people have been killed and hundreds of homes have been destroyed. We're like, are you kidding? You know, how important is it? What is important? The important thing for me today is to keep my spiritual serenity, my my sobriety, my real sobriety. I've lost the word, but I know what I'm saying. They wrote a book about it. It's an AA book. But it is a spiritual place in which we get to live today. 
I used to live in a dark hole and even in, even even live in silver. I used to live in a dark hole and occasionally visit the light. Okay? And that as I have lived through all the different challenges and the darkness where I have grown most, as you said, Kate, last time. As I have lived through these things, I have found more and more to stand on, more and more strength, more and more acceptance, more and more the ability to relate and to love and to have compassion for others, more and more of what God has for me in order to make me a complete human being, which I was, you know, they say return to sanity. I never had any to return to. I have acquired some. But I never had any. You know, I went to college in AA. I went to graduate school in AA. I was teaching freshman composition to college freshmen. The alligator girl. Okay? My life is rich and full. I have many friends. I have people I don't like. (laughs) But I love them. And the reason I know that I love them is I would do anything to help them stay sober. Yeah? Whatever. I would do anything to help them stay sober. But I don't have to like them. And you don't have to like me. But we love each other. In a way, with a bond that surpasses any other bond that I know of, really. Because without this, I am certainly not a good wife, not a good mother, not a good friend, not a good citizen, and certainly not a decent human being. And without you, and without this wonderful thing, the greatest spiritual journey ever of the 20th century, put together by a guy who was three years sober, which Clancy Emerson says he doesn't want people unescorted on his property with three years You know, he's the most famous guy in an anonymous program. So the guy, three years sober, wrote this book. If you don't believe it's divine, then you haven't read it. And if you're new, you need to look in the back for spiritual experience and read that. It's extremely important. I've had many spiritual experiences here over and over again, starting from the first day and all the way up to this weekend. You know, it gets better. It really does. And if I can leave you with anything, it is the message of hope. The message that you too can live sober. You do not have to die. You do not have to go back out. You do not have to drink or drug again. It says in the Bible, you do not have because you do not ask. I've had many people call me on the phone going out of their mind. And I said, well, have you asked God to remove that? Well, no. Well, pray. Call me back later. And whatever you're doing now, whatever it is that you're doing or not doing, ask yourself a question. How is it working for you? Thank you.